Well, as many of you will know, the month of June is LGBTQ plus Pride Month. Now, to use those letters together, LGBTQ together 20 years ago, would have resulted in ignorant stares. No one would have known what you were talking about. Now, those letters together are more ubiquitous, particularly here in Portland, than the Pledge of Allegiance or the American flag. Going back 50 years ago to identify as part of the group that now calls itself LGBTQ+, would have been, been considered a mental health condition, officially. Now, those who don't join the LGBTQ plus revolution are looked upon with suspicion and concern. Some of us may come to church to deny the reality that is out there, but we all know this to be true. We must celebrate pride ideology or face the consequences. But this isn't a sermon about gender identity or sexual orientation. If you want to know more about what our church thinks about those things, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to Michael's sermons from May and June of 2022 last year. But I raised the topic of Pride Month as a modern-day example of a revolution that's happened relatively quickly that forces a decision. Because to be neutral is not an option to LGBTQ plus activists. To choose not to be an affirming ally is to be complicit in bigotry and even hate. Well, this summer, we are considering how the coming of Jesus was a revolution that cannot be ignored. We considered the introduction of Jesus last week. And just like Pride Month, Jesus will not allow you to remain neutral. This sermon series is entitled Amazed and Confused in the Presence of Jesus because each week we're going to be looking and paying particular attention in the Gospel of Mark to how different people respond to Jesus as we see different aspects of his identity. Today, we're going to be considering how Jesus reveals himself to be a revolutionary teacher. And I know many of us, probably most of us, would be fans of Jesus' teaching, the golden rule, uh, loving others, kindness. And that's good. But today, we're going to see that Jesus' teaching comes with such authority that he won't allow you to simply give a thumbs up to his teaching, to simply like what he has to say. My main argument for us today is Jesus' new teaching demands a response. Jesus' new teaching demands a response. This morning, we're going to explore Jesus' revolutionary teaching and his call for us to make a decision by first observing Jesus' growing popularity Second, we're going to see Jesus's growing opposition. And third and finally, we're going to consider Jesus's line in the sand, his line in the sand where we all must choose either to submit to Jesus's authority or to resist in pride. My prayer for you, my prayer for us as a church is that you would not oppose Jesus's teaching and authority like the religious leaders of his day but that you would submit to his authority in faith, in trust, in love. And my prayer is that you would submit to Jesus' authority because you will see, maybe even for the first time today, that Jesus' rule as Lord is a rule of love. So first, let's consider Jesus' growing popularity in Mark 1, 16 through 2, 12, I'd invite you to open your Bibles uh, to the Gospel of Mark now. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can follow along in the Black Pew Bibles. 
that are in front of you, uh, you can find the Gospel of Mark on page 887 of those Pew Bibles. 887. I will warn you, last week we took like a, a walk into the wilderness. Remember, through a mere 15 verses, we had uh, John the Baptist as our park ranger, kind of orienting us, introducing us to Jesus. We were able to walk at a leisurely pace. Well, today I hope you brought your running shoes because we're going to be sprinting through a lot of text today and simply trying to get the big themes, the big ideas. Maybe some other time we can go more leisurely through these, this text, but we're, just, we're not even going to be able to read all the text today. So you will be helped if you have your Bibles open and you can kind of see what's, what's going on for yourself in God's Word. Well, let's look at Mark 121, again, page 887. And as I read Mark 121 through 28, ask yourself, how are people responding to the Jesus revolution? How are people responding? They went into Capernaum, and right away he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. They were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. Just then a man with an unclean spirit was in their synagogue. He cried out, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit threw him into convulsions, shouted with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed. And so they began to ask each other, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. At once, the news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. Jesus is going viral before social media. The people are amazed. Uh, the words that Mark uses for amazed, astonished, also have the connotation of alarm. They recognize that someone who has authority, unlike their religious teachers, unlike the Pharisees, to even command evil spirits is among them. And this isn't just amazing, it's a little disturbing to have someone so powerful in their midst. You know, if we're honest, often we find religious teaching to be dull, boring at times. I don't think anybody was bored at synagogue school this day. People are floored. This isn't just a man, a demagogue, some street hustler, some new teacher with some new techniques, kind of a, a winning personality and charisma, or a message that really just resonates with the people of the first century. He was just the right man for that time. No, he has a whole new revolutionary message that carries with it power and authority. And the news is spreading. We, we see that throughout these chapters. Uh, we got more healings and exorcisms, and then we see in chapter 1, verse 33, if you skip, skip down there, the whole town was assembled at the door. This was the door when, uh, of Simon Pete, Simon's mother-in-law, who he had just healed. People are coming and crowding at the door. He's Jesus is blowing up. He's trying to keep a lid kind of on his popularity, on his growing uh, name. He's telling the demons not to speak. He's asking some people who he heals not to talk about him, but people can't contain themselves. People are talking uh, because he's revolutionizing people's lives one by one, but also as he teaches this new teaching with authority. Uh, before long, it appears that Jesus can barely eat or sleep that people are seeking after him. So Jesus gets out of town. Uh, and this is what we see in verses 35 through 38. Listen as I read chapter 1, verses 35 through 38. Very, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place. And there he was praying. Simon and his companions searched for him. And when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. We skipped over when Jesus called uh, at least four disciples, just ordinary fishermen, to join this revolutionary movement, the Jesus movement. And uh, they're a little confused. 
Why is he out in the wilderness by himself? Jesus, I mean, we got work to do. We got to get the show on the road. This is, this is phrased almost like a rebuke. Jesus, with great power comes great responsibility. You got to get back out there and get your name out there. But, but Jesus is showing us that just healings and exorcisms, making a big name for himself is not what he's all about. He has come to preach. Jesus has come as a preacher to preach the gospel, like we considered there in chapter 1, 14, and 15 last week. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is what Jesus was proclaiming. You know, this is no geopolitical revolution, no cultural or social revolt. It's God's authoritative call to respond to the kingdom of God, to respond to what God can do for you, what you cannot do for yourself. And this is what we're going to see in the next section, the next verses in Mark 1, 39 through 45. So look with me there at verses 39 through 45. He went into all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Then a man with leprosy came to him and, and on his knees begged him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him, be made clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was made clean. This man with leprosy was unclean. That is, he was not to touch others or be touched or even be in most social settings. By the standards of the day, this man was an outcast. To touch this man or to be touched by him would make you unclean. Uh, you would be unable to go into the synagogue to worship. Uh, you would almost become an outcast if you were, if you were touched by the leper, a le someone who had leprosy. That's what the religion of the day said. That's what the law was. So it was a shameful thing for this man to even approach Jesus and to fall on his knees before him. But he begs Jesus to make him clean. Jesus doesn't shame the man. Jesus doesn't say, hey, come on. You're dirty, piece of filth. Keep your distance. Don't you know why I'm here? Jesus doesn't say, I'm here to preach about the kingdom. Can't be wasting my time with any and every leper, giving free handouts. I think it's interesting that in a gospel text, it kind of moves along like a comic book immediately, action. Mark takes a minute to record Jesus' feelings, his, his motivation, his emotions. Mark tells us that Jesus is moved with compassion for this man. Now, maybe you noticed in your Bible translation, there's a note that says he's moved with indignation. You're like, well, which is it? Those are pretty different. <laughs> uh, I, I think Jesus moved with indignation could refer to Jesus being angry at the curse of sin and death. Uh, similar to how Jesus was angered at, at death at the tomb of Lazarus in the Gospel of John, he's not angry at the man. He's angry at the bondage that this man has been in. But whether it's compassion towards the man or anger at the curse or a little bit of both, what happens next should bring us great comfort and hope. Jesus does the unthinkable and he reaches out and touches the, the leper. Any other person would have become unclean, but not Jesus. Jesus' purity cleanses the man's leprosy. Consider, Jesus could have just said, okay, you're clean. No, you know, get, he could have just spoken the word, but he touches the man, identifying with him, he tells them that he is not only able, he has authority, but he's willing. You know, I just, I feel like I need to pause here and just say a word to 
to Henson, we demonstrate Christ's authority and a picture of God's kingdom rule in Christ when we preach, when we teach this message about the kingdom, about what Jesus has come to do and who he is, and when our lives are transformed by that message and we get our hands dirty serving. And I have never been a part of a congregation who does that like I've seen this church do. I have seen so many and heard so many of you who are willing to serve not just your biological families, but this church family, people that you wouldn't naturally have somewhat, something in common with, and you have gone and done dirty work in order to serve your brothers and sisters in this. And as we were singing Speak, O Lord, earlier, I just couldn't help but praise God for how I have seen your acts of love and your deeds of faith that testify to the fact that Jesus is at work in this congregation. And I am so thankful and privileged to be a part of a church that serves like this. Well, when Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom, that the gospel of the kingdom was near, he underlined that message by showing his power and compassion on those whom he came to preach to. So he wasn't just like on the pulpit and then left through the back door. No, he, he saw people. He noticed people. He was moved with compassion. And notice the result. Look at Mark 145. Yet he, that was the man who was formerly a leper, went out and began to proclaim it widely and to spread the news with the result that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. But he was out in deserted places and they came to him from every, everywhere. That was Jesus. Even in the desert, people are coming to him. I want to look now at Mark 2, 1 through 12 and notice how Jesus' popularity continues to grow. So look with me at Mark 2, 1 through 12. When he, that's Jesus, entered Capernaum, again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Notice the popularity here in verse 2. So many people gathered together that there was no more room, not even in the doorway. And he was speaking the word to them, standing room only. They came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, you're healed. No. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. So you see here in the middle of this passage, the religious leaders are kind of questioning in the face of Jesus's popularity, in the faith, and, and after he says, your sins are forgiven to this paralytic, who does this guy think he is? Who does he think he is? Well, Jesus tells him, verse 10, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, go home. Talk about a new teaching with authority. The paralytic's response, verse 12, immediately, this paralytic got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. You know, the, the paralytic didn't ask questions, didn't hesitate, it doesn't say, I don't think you understand. I'm paralyzed. I can't, I can't get up. No, he responds. Jesus, Jesus speaks, and people listen and obey. Isn't that what we've been seeing throughout chapter 1 and chapter 2 here so far? 
Demons obey. Jesus speaks and they obey. The sick, he heals. They, re- they respond. Ordinary fishermen, he calls. They listen and obey. Perhaps you this morning hear God's word and you can respond immediately in trust and faith. I hope you're seeing that Jesus is not just a teacher with some wise and memorable sayings that we can put on coffee mugs and t-shirts. Jesus is not only someone who happened to heal a bunch of people in Galilee in the first century. His healings, his teaching testified that he was someone different than the rest of us. He healed to testify to his message about the kingdom. He had not just come as a teacher or God's messenger. He wasn't just another prophet. He's God. God alone has the authority to forgive sins. The scribes nailed it. Yeah, God alone has the authority to forgive sins. And here he is. You know, Mark observes in verse 12, as a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Yeah, you betcha they hadn't seen anything like this because they had never seen anyone like this. If they only knew, they knew he had authority, but did they know who was standing in their midst? You know, even in that room, after he says that, after we see this amazing miracle, you see all kinds of different responses to Jesus, even in that one room. You got the friends of the paralyzed man who had faith, were willing to go to great effort to get their friend before Jesus. And then you have the, the scribes, the teachers of the law, thought he was a blasphemer. In the same room as Jesus right there, Jesus is in the flesh, God in the flesh, and you have skepticism and faith, love and hate. And I'm sure in this room today, as God's word is being read and taught, different responses to Jesus and his teaching. And I just want you to be honest about your response to Jesus today. Don't fool yourself. What does your life say about who Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? What does your life say? And what do you want Jesus to do for you? What would you like God to do for you today? You know, clearly the man who was paralyzed thought his biggest problem was obviously he was paralyzed. But the far greater miracle that happened was not that he was healed from his paralysis, but that he was forgiven of his sins by the Son of Man himself. I wonder if that's what you and I think we need most from God, forgiveness of sins. If we believe that our biggest problem in life is that we are rebels against a holy God, that we want to live life on our own terms. You know, maybe talk about this over lunch and be honest about what you'd like Jesus to really do for you. Be honest. Was it, you know, that he would take away some sickness, anxiety, depression, loneliness, to give you a better career, to give you more obedient children, to give you a spouse or a better spouse. Maybe don't say that out loud if your spouse is sitting there, that that's what you'd like God to do. But be honest about what you would like God to do for you and then talk and pray. This is what the church is for. Talk and pray about the fight for faith, that what Jesus really came to do, he didn't come to heal everybody, but what he came to do to forgive sins is far better than giving us all those things and more. Jesus came to preach a new teaching that demands a response, that we turn from our sins and repentance and believe that he 
since he's the son of man, God himself has come to forgive us of our sins. Well, Jesus' fame is spreading. People have never seen anything or anyone like this. But in the question of the scribes in chapter 2, they never spoke it out loud. It was just in their hearts, and Jesus was, knew what they were thinking. The tension begins to build right here in chapter 2. Jesus may have left the wilderness and the opposition of Satan in the desert, but the human opposition against Jesus is growing. And that's what we're going to see in our second point, his growing opposition. In chapter 2, verse 13 through 3, 6. There are three questions in this section which help us see the opposition uh, to Jesus. And I think these questions will even help us discern if our hearts are opposed to Jesus and his revolutionary mission. So question number one, look at chapter two, verse 16. Why does he, that's Jesus, eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's question one. What had just happened is Jesus had just called Levi a tax collector who was a social outcast in Judaism. He was a sellout. He was a thief. And he calls Levi to come and follow him. And, and Levi does what these, many of these characters do in, in the Gospel of Mark. He immediately follows Jesus. He's so, Levi is so overjoyed, he throws a big party. He invites his friends. He invites Jesus and his disciples. And the Pharisees are there in the corner, and they're judging. They're judging Jesus, and they essentially ask, why have you made peace to, to share a meal in the ancient Near East in the first century was to make peace with people. Why do you associate with the scum, the sinners, the cheats, the prostitutes, the thieves? What are you doing? Well, what, is, what does Jesus say? Be a, kids, this would be a great verse to memorize this summer. Chapter 2, verse 17. When Jesus heard this, he told them, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Can you appreciate the irony there? Those who think they don't need to repent of their sins are called righteous. That is, they are righteous in their own eyes. But the people who know themselves to be sinners, oh, that's, that's who Jesus wants to spend some time with. That's who Jesus is identifying with. So, if you're here this morning and you think, I'm doing pretty well, uh, I feel like I've got it made, I've got my ducks in a row, I've got things under control, world's my oyster. Well, Jesus doesn't have time for you, friend. He's too busy eating and drinking with those who know they need him every day. You know, maybe you come to church today and you don't really feel comfortable and I want to commend you for being here in a place where you kind of maybe feel out of place. Maybe part of the reason for some of us why we don't feel comfortable in church is we feel like, oh, are people judging me? I know the things I've done. I know the things I've said. Maybe it's because of an addiction or divorce or same-sex attraction. Maybe it's because of the ways that people have sinned against you, that you feel shame, abuse. Friends, this is exactly who the church is for. People like you, who recognize your need of Jesus, like Levi. The church is for sinners who recognize their need of Jesus. That is who is welcome to come. So I want to ask Hinson, is this the kind of culture that we're cultivating here? That this is who the church is for? Not just the gifted, not those who have it together, who have a clean, squeaky clean past, you know, Jesus is looking to dine with sinners who respond like Levi when he calls. Church shouldn't be a place where we act like we have it all together, but we come broken, burdened by our sin, 
confessing our sin, living transparently with one another, you know, maybe at times feeling shame and guilt for what we've done, but then knowing that Christ is not ashamed to identify with us, that this is why he came. He is not afraid or ashamed to dine with those who turn from their sin, who recognize their great need of Jesus. He identifies, Jesus identifies with the worst of sinners. And he identifies with you and me. This is the new teaching that Jesus brought, a teaching that welcomes sinners to come and to turn to him. Obviously, religion and the world isn't going to like that message. Uh, We want to be affirmed and valued for who we are, for what we've done, not for our weakness and our neediness. So the tension's continuing to build. We got question number two now from the religious teachers. Listen as I read 2.18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and asked him, why do John's disciples and Pharisees' disciples fast, but your disciples do not fast? At its core, fasting was associated with mourning, not the beginning of the day, but like weeping, being sad, crying. Um, And there were specific days when the Jews were encouraged to fast uh, and express their mourning over sin and death by fasting. Naturally, there were people who wanted to know why Jesus and his disciples aren't fasting like the rest of us good, obedient, law-keeping Jews, according to the tradition of the the scribes and the elders. Well, Jesus responds by using three metaphors that all get at the same idea. And these metaphors may be a little confusing for us today, but they would have been very clear to Jesus's original audience. You know, even in verse 20, when Jesus says, but the time will come. Do you see that there in uh, chapter two, verse 20? But the time will come. He's literally saying, the days are coming when. The days are coming when dot, dot, dot. His audience would have been able to finish that sentence easier than you or I could finish the sentence, what's cooler than being cool? What's cool? I will work on that. When Jesus says in verse 20, the time will come or the days are coming, their minds would have gone to Amos 9, 13. Look, the days are coming. The mountains will drip with sweet wine and all the hills will flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. I will plant them in their land and they will never again be uprooted. Jesus is using these these metaphors, these three metaphors in Mark 2, 19 through 22, saying the bridegroom is here. Yahweh is here among you. The kingdom of God is in your midst, and it's now time for the new wine to flow. The time of the new creation has dawned in the coming of Jesus. So mourning, according to a man-made tradition, is completely out of place. This is a time for feasting, not fasting. It's a time for wine, not weeping. It's a time for singing, not sorrow. It's a time of new beginnings, beginnings, not bondage. So consider how the religious leaders would have felt after Jesus said these things, right? The scribes had built their whole lives around keeping this law. But with Jesus' new teaching, he's, Jesus is saying, oh, that's, that's obsolete now. It was all pointing to me, but now I don't need to do that anymore. The fulfillment of the law is here in me. Uh, we're going to consider how, how the religious leaders responded to that in a minute. Let's turn to the third question, though, regarding the Sabbath and 224. You can just feel the tension building. The religious leader's frustration with Jesus is just becoming palpable here. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? With Jesus and his disciples um, eating, Jesus or picking the grain. Jesus responds again by turning to the Old Testament. It's a common theme here. They ask him a question. Jesus responds alluding to the Old Testament or picking up, maybe quoting it directly. And he talks about how David and the high priest, um, how that was pointing to what the Sabbath was all about. That the Sabbath was not made for man here. The weekly Sabbath anticipates the great Sabbath at the end of time. So actually the Sabbath was made for man and Jesus is here as the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is announcing in his preaching and his actions that the kingdom of God now had drawn near and they should be observing him, like, check me out, not keeping your Sabbath, all your Sabbath regulations. 
So I just want to review now quickly through those three questions what we've learned so far about how Jesus has offended the religious leaders. First, he tells them in 2.10 that he is the son of man, a.k.a. God, who has authority to forgive sins. Then he tells them he doesn't really have time for them in 2.17 because he's come to call sinners, not self-righteous people like them, to himself. And then he tells them the last days are here now. So with his coming, all their fasting and Sabbath regulations and rules are now obsolete. What's he going to do next? Well, chapter 3, 1 through 6, it's when we kind of see the dagger right in front of him. On the Sabbath, he heals a man with her shriveled hand. According to the Pharisees, that was work. Shouldn't do that. Healing is work. So, verse 6, chapter 3, the religious leaders, along with the political leaders, start plotting on how they can bring an end to Jesus. They've had enough of this guy. I think we should pause here to recognize what we have in common with the religious leaders at this point. Imagine you and you or I had built our whole lives seeking to honor God, do the right thing in a particular way. Say it's through music, writing, speaking, studying, serving, giving, missions, whatever. You've devoted your whole life to serving God in this way. And then someone shows up and says, yeah, that's over. We don't need you to do that anymore. How do you think you'd feel? Well, I think that helps us understand a little bit how these religious leaders felt. After these three questions that the religious teachers have for Jesus, Jesus has a question for them in the narrative there in 3, 1 through 6. Look at chapter 3, verse 4. Jesus asks them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Jesus is asking the religious teachers about their area of expertise. Now, every time they asked him a question, he turned to the authority of God's word or alluded to it. Now he's like, I'll play in your home ballpark. What's up with the Sabbath here? But what's their response? They're silent. They had no response. With one question, Jesus exposes their hypocrisy. Henson are we sometimes like the Pharisees? We get so busy, maybe even with ministry, with good things, that we forget who it's all about. All about our religious activity, all our Christianity, and we miss Jesus. You know, how have you perhaps Oppose Jesus even as you convinced yourself that you're serving him. These religious teachers thought that they were standing up for God himself and God's word. You know, Jesus is clearly threatening the religious and the worldly frameworks that are built on the foundation of pride and self-justification. And when you threaten what people put their confidence in, you threaten them. Jesus came to call not those who have it all figured out, but those who recognize they need help but they need a doctor. Maybe you need to call a spiritual ambulance before you leave today. Talk to someone who can help you know what it means to sit and feast with Jesus as a sinner who is only forgiven because Jesus came and turned your life upside down and he didn't need any help from you. 
He saves us in spite of us. He doesn't meet us halfway. That brings us to our third and final point today, his line in the sand. And listen as I read our final passage and consider where your allegiances lie. Where do your allegiances lie? Look at Mark 3, starting in verse 20. Jesus entered a house, and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they set, they set out to restrain him because they said, he's out of his mind. Scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. Verse 23, so he summoned them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. His mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, look, your mother, your brothers, and your sisters are outside asking for you. He replied to them, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Even Jesus' own family thought he was off his rocker. So busy teaching and healing that he wouldn't eat. The religious leaders, on the other hand, have come to a different conclusion, not that he's just crazy, but that he's possessed by an unclean spirit. And just to be clear, that's the unforgivable sin that is being addressed in verses 28 through 30. Mark didn't put it in there so that we can stay, we're kept up at night and unable to sleep because we're concerned that we've committed the unforgivable sin. No, the unforgivable sin is clearly in this context to call demon or Jesus like demon-possessed. Um, it's, it's hearts that are so hard in unbelief that they're willing, you're willing to call light darkness, calling the author of life the king of death. I think that's what we see there in verse 30, just as an aside. Jesus reveals to us here in his teaching that he has come not, in, not as an ally to the enemy, to the adversary, but to confront Satan and to crush him on all fields of battle. So you may be like his family today. You may think he's crazy. Or you may think his exclusive teaching about himself is immoral, intolerant, bigoted. If you think either of those things, you'll just join the long line of, of people who thought he was either out of his mind or even dangerous. If you think he's dangerous, you're not totally wrong. Uh, trusting in Jesus is dangerous. All revolutions are dangerous and costly. It will put you in opposition to the natural loyalties and expected behavior of the world order, right? Jesus' teaching, we see right here, could even put you in conflict or at odds with your own biological family. I wonder if you're prepared for that. Now, this doesn't mean that you get go and get that you can be a jerk to your family because in the name of Jesus. Uh, but if your family thinks that you're going to extremes and mocks you or is angered that you prioritize your church family over your biological family's expectations of you, then God's calling you to dangerous discipleship. He's calling you to follow him. He's inviting and challenging you to humbly come and dine with him, even when it irks the ire 
of your family. Now, maybe some of you are being reminded or even thinking about for the first time, like, whoa, I didn't realize that following Jesus was so radical. I, think, I thought basically Jesus was just telling us to, you know, be nice, be kind. Uh, I thought Jesus' teaching was all about that stuff that is basically common to all the other world religions. Well, I challenge you. I mean, we're not even through the first four chapters. We're just at chapter three of Mark. I challenge you to carefully read these accounts of Jesus, the line in the sand, uh, and come to the conclusion that Jesus' teaching is just basically like every other religious teacher. Believing in Jesus is subversive. Trusting him, trusting in him is a whole new way of living that will transform your loyalties, your relationships. Jesus draws a line in the sand, and you won't be able to stand on that line. You won't be able to remain neutral because Jesus has come with great authority. And you'll either celebrate that authority and gladly submit yourself to it in faith, or you will continue, which is our natural way, to resist God in our pride, thinking that we can live life on our own terms. Well, Jesus came in great power. As we saw in 2.12, he is unlike anyone we have ever seen. His teaching demands a response, but he doesn't just speak words that demand that we listen. He uses his authority to bring healing, to bring life, to push back the curse. And he uses his authority to take on Satan himself on the field of battle so that one day the curse of sin and death will be done for. It will be finished. And there's no more clear demonstration that Jesus' authority is for our good, that his rule is a rule of love than the line in the sand that he draws with the cross of Christ. After chapter 3, verse 6, the cross looms over Jesus' life for the rest of the narrative because Jesus' opponents could not take it any longer, and they will succeed in putting him to death. But it's at the cross where we see the kingdom of God truly has come near. God has come down, and he has crowned his king. Jesus didn't come simply to heal a few people or to teach us a few wise sayings on how to be good. Jesus came for sinners like you and like me. Jesus came to take on the wrath of the Father that you and I deserve because of our sin. Our sin is not just mistakes or character flaws or just being human. It is opposition to the God who made us to be in relationship with him. And God didn't send his son just to show us a demonstration of what love is like. So go and be like that. Sacrifice yourself for others. Isn't that nice of you, Jesus, as a good example? No, the cross is for people who see the cross as all that they've got. The cross is the line in the sand, friends. You will either submit to the authority of Jesus in repentance and confess that there on the cross, Jesus showed himself to be Savior and Lord, and the Savior and Lord that I need, that I, not, not just that I needed when I prayed that prayer at summer camp when I was seven years old, but that I need today. Or we continue to live as our own lords and follow the teachings of this world and trust our own reason and our own mind and the things that we've been taught and continue to be in opposition to God. Friend, if you do not know Christ, if you do not love him as your Savior and Lord, I'd invite you to submit yourself to him instead of the slavery of your own sin. Jesus makes such a better Lord than you or me. He makes such a better God than living as if we are our own gods. His authority brings life. Our authority, well, just look around the world, not doing so good. Jesus' authority is self-giving, and he alone can forgive you of your sins. Jesus didn't come just to bring reform, not just to kind of tweak Judaism. He didn't come to be the appetizer 
in the meal of our life. He, didn't, he came to topple old systems and ways of thinking. His popularity was well-deserved. We we've never seen anyone like him. But we can all relate to why people opposed him. For his presence exposed those whose identity was in anything other than trust in him. And so just like those characters in history that we see here in this first century document, just like Mark's readers, which would have been just 30 years after these events took place, we are faced with a choice today, 2,000 years later. The message of the kingdom of God has come to us today. It's come to the ends of the earth. Here we are in Portland, Oregon, thousands of miles from where these things took place. And why, in God's providence, would he have you here today hearing this message about the kingdom of God? Why do you think? Maybe one reason. It's because God is drawing a line in the sand for you today to help you make a choice. Today, will you submit to him and his authority and do his will and be his mother, brother, and sisters? Or will you oppose him and think that Jesus and his followers are a little extreme, a little out of their mind, maybe a little immoral even? There isn't time for maybes or I'll think about it. We have heard the authority of God himself and the voice of Christ speak today. He has called us to repent and believe that because Jesus died for sinners like you and me, we can be forgiven. You can know the hope of the resurrection life today. Jesus is able, considered his authority, and he's willing. We've considered his compassion and his love. You are able. He invites you, no matter what you've done, to come to him. You are able to come to Christ today in repentance and faith. The question for you today is, are you willing? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would humble us. Even now that you would help us see that without Christ, we are lost in rebellion, in slavery, in death. Lord, you came to bring life and light through the gospel. So stir in our hearts great joy that you, the bridegroom, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Son of Man, the great teacher, our Savior and Lord has come. Help that to change everything about our lives. Oh Lord, we pray that we would help one another rest in the truth that you have done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. You came for sinners. So Lord, help us to live lives of repentance and faith in you and help us to help one another. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.